Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts. My name is Justin Schieber, and instead of a regular episode today, we are delighted to bring to you a fascinating debate between Jeffrey J. Lauder and Kevin Vandergriff. The debate topic is naturalism or Christian theism. Where does the evidence point? This debate was not a live debate. Rather, it was compiled from a series of audio exchanges that took place between the months of September and October in 2014. The exchanges followed an agreed-upon format and went according to an agreed-upon time limitation on each section. For each of their several sections, the debaters were given at least a week to analyze, script, and record their entries before submitting it to their opponent. Each submission was then edited together in the agreed-upon order for your listening interest. As one speaker ends, the other will follow without interruption. 20 minutes for the opening statements, 15 minutes for first rebuttals, 10 minutes for second rebuttals, and 5 minutes for closings. Arguing that the total evidence points toward naturalism and against Christian theism will be Jeffrey J. Lauder. Jeffrey J. Lauder is an author, speaker, and debater whose interests include philosophy of religion, philosophy of science, inductive logic, and metaethics. His 2005 book, The Empty Tomb, Jesus Beyond the Grave, co-edited with Robert Price on Prometheus, is an anthology of 15 scholarly essays critical of the historicity of Jesus' resurrection, and is widely considered one of the best book-length critiques of the resurrection. His 1999 debate on naturalism versus Christian theism is widely regarded as one of the best debate performances ever by an atheist on the topic of God's existence. He is co-founder, past president, and a member of the editorial board of Internet Infidels, which operates one of the first-ever Internet atheist sites, the Secular Web. He is currently the editor of an atheist team blog known as the Secular Outpost, hosted by Pathios. Arguing that that the total evidence points towards Christian theism and against naturalism, is Kevin Vandergriff. Kevin studied philosophy at the undergraduate and graduate levels. Kevin says he is not a Christian apologist, but is a truth-seeking philosopher who became a Christian after years of honest inquiry, research, and dialogue with others. Those looking to have an Irenic discussion can contact him at his blog, apologeticsinthechurch.com. Slides were also prepared by the debaters, and they will be set to the debate audio and uploaded to the Doubtcast YouTube channel if you would like to follow along with the slides. Without further delay, enjoy the debate. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I'd like to thank Justin Schieber for organizing and hosting this debate. I'd also like to thank Kevin Vandergriff for agreeing to participate. In this debate, we've been asked to assess where the evidence points, to naturalism or to Christian theism. 
Before we can answer that question, we need to have some idea of what we're talking about. So let me begin by defining some terms. First, by evidence, I mean something which makes something else more probable than it would have been. Let me give you an example. Imagine you have two jars of red and blue jelly beans. In the first jar, 90% of the jelly beans are blue and the rest are red. In the second jar, 90% of the jelly beans are red and the rest are blue. Now imagine you're handed a jelly bean from one of the jars, but you don't know which jar it came from. If it's a blue bean, that's evidence it came from the first jar, not the second. Although it's possible it came from the second jar, it's more likely that it came from the first because there are more blue jelly beans in the first than in the second. Likewise, if it's a red bean, that's evidence it came from the second jar. Again, while it's possible the red bean came from the first jar, it's more likely that it came from the second because it has many more red beans. Secondly, by naturalism. I mean the view that the physical world explains why anything mental exists. If naturalism is true, then there are no purely mental beings which can exist apart from a physical body, and so there is no God or any person or being much like God. And thirdly, by supernaturalism, I mean the view that the mental world explains why anything physical exists. If supernaturalism is true, then there is no purely physical matter which can exist without some sort of ultimate mental creator or sustainer. Theism is a type of supernaturalism. It's the belief that there is an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good personal mind called God. Christian theism is a type of theism. It says that God has revealed himself decisively in Jesus Christ. Now the question before us is, when you weigh the evidence for Christian theism against the evidence for naturalism, which way, on balance, does the evidence point? In support of a naturalistic answer to that question, I'm going to defend two basic contentions. One, naturalism is a simpler explanation than Christian theism. And two, naturalism is a more accurate explanation than Christian theism. Let's look then at my first basic contention. Naturalism is a simpler explanation than Christian theism. Naturalism and supernaturalism are symmetrical claims. Naturalism claims that the physical explains the mental, while supernaturalism claims that the mental explains the physical. Both claims are equally modest and equally coherent. Before examining the evidence, both positions are equally likely to be true. But now compare naturalism and Christian theism. Theism says everything that supernaturalism says, but adds on several additional claims, such as the non-physical mental entity which explains the natural world is a person, and the per that person created the world for a purpose, and that person is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. Christian theism adds on even more claims to the claims of theism. Because Christian theism entails or implies supernaturalism, but could be false even if supernaturalism is true, 
it follows that prior to examining the evidence, Christian theism is less likely to be true than supernaturalism. And so Christian theism is also less likely to be true than, than, sorry, than naturalism. Let's turn then to my second basic contention. Naturalism is a more accurate explanation than Christian theism. Here, I'd like to present nine lines of evidence that are more probable on naturalism than on Christian theism. Number one, naturalism is the best explanation for the fact that physical matter exists. I want to be very clear. The existence of physical matter is logically compatible with theism. God could have created matter. But God could have also chosen to create other minds without physical bodies, such as angels, and therefore not needed to create a physical universe to support such bodies. Or God could have chosen to create nothing at all. In other words, God's existence doesn't entail physical matter. In contrast, naturalism implies that physical matter exists. In other words, if naturalism is true, then physical matter must exist. Since naturalism entails that physical matter exists, whereas theism does not, it follows that physical matter is evidence favoring naturalism over theism. Number two, naturalism is the best explanation for the fact that so much of the universe is hostile to life. Discoveries in astronomy have revealed that the vast, vast majority of the universe is incredibly hostile to life. It contains vast amounts of empty space, temperatures near absolute zero, cosmic radiation, and so forth. Given that life exists in this universe, the fact that so much of our universe is hostile to life is more probable on naturalism than on theism. Number three, naturalism is the best explanation for the fact that all life, including conscious life, evolved from a common ancestor. To be sure, biological evolution is logically compatible with theism. God could have used evolution to create life, but God could have also used many other methods to create life, methods which are impossible if naturalism is true. On the other hand, if naturalism is true, evolution pretty much has to be true. Furthermore, since theism entails that if a physical world exists, it was created by a mind, theism leads us to expect that minds are fundamentally non-physical entities, and therefore that conscious life is fundamentally different from non-conscious life. But this, in turn, would lead us to expect that conscious life was created independently of non-conscious life, that evolution is false. And so the scientific fact of biological evolution is more likely on the assumption that naturalism is true than on the assumption that theism is true. Number four, naturalism is the best explanation for the biological role and apparent moral randomness of pain and pleasure. Suppose you are inside a building that is caught on fire and all the exits are blocked. The fire gets closer and closer to you until you are actually in pain because of the intense heat. Suddenly, a group of firefighters arrive and are able to rescue you. 
your pain in this case was biologically useful because it contributed to one or two biological goals, survival and reproduction. The naturalistic explanation for this is obvious. If human beings are the products of evolution by natural selection, then we would expect physical pain and pleasure to motivate human behavior in ways that aided survival and reproduction. But not all physical pain and pleasure are biologically useful. Consider, for example, the physical pain felt by a person killed in that same fire I just told you about. That pain was not biologically useful because it did not contribute to survival or reproduction. But it was biologically appropriate because it is biologically useful that humans in general feel pain when they come in contact with fire. Now, if naturalism is true, Humans are the byproducts of evolution by natural selection, which is indifferent to human suffering. And so pain and pleasure that is biologically useless but appropriate is what we would expect if naturalism is true. On the other hand, if theism is true, God could fine-tune humans so that they only experience physical pain and pleasure when it was morally necessary. So theism leads us to expect that pain and pleasure are fundamentally moral phenomena which just happens to be connected to the biological goals of survival and reproduction. And that's a huge coincidence that naturalism doesn't need. It gets worse. Some pain, like the suffering endured by people trapped in burning buildings before they die, or people with terminal illnesses or injuries, and some pleasure, like the sexual pleasure enjoyed by the man who rapes an infertile woman, is biologically gratuitous. It does not contribute to survival or reproduction. On naturalism, this is just what we would expect. Blind nature has no way to fine-tune organic systems to prevent such pain and pleasure. On theism, however, this is extremely surprising. So this evidence is very much more probable on naturalism than on theism. Number five, naturalism is the best explanation for the flourishing and languishing of sentient beings. Paul Draper explains, the majority of living things, including the majority of sentient beings, never flourish. Many more flourish for only a very small portion of their lives, and almost none who live a full life flourish for all of it. A naturalistic explanation of this is readily available. If populations of organisms increase geometrically, and this leads to a competition for the resources necessary to survive, then it is inevitable, inevitable that a large percentage of all living things will not survive long enough to thrive. Many more will barely survive and thus languish for all or almost all of their lives. And even those organisms that do flourish for much of their lives will, if they live long enough, ultimately languish in old age. A Darwinian naturalistic world is inevitably cruel, especially to the young, the old, and the genetically less fortunate. But if theism is true, then facts about the flourishing and languishing of sentient beings are exactly the opposite of what we would expect. If God exists, then God would allow sentient beings to suffer or languish only if he had good moral reasons for doing so. In other words, think about the following question. Is there a moral justification 
for using natural selection to produce a world in which most living things never or rarely flourish because they have to compete with each other for survival. If naturalism is true, the answer to that question could be yes or no. But if theism is true, the answer has to be yes. And that's a really big coincidence that naturalism doesn't need. So the flourishing and languishing of sentient beings provides independent evidence for naturalism and against theism. Number six, triumph. Number six, naturalism is the best explanation for known facts about triumph and tragedy. There are three additional facts about good and evil which favor naturalism over theism. First, to paraphrase Paul Draper, our world contains much horrific suffering and relatively little glorious pleasure. As he puts it, indeed, triumph is the exception and tragedy the rule on our planet, where the deepest and the best aspirations of human beings are routinely crushed by a variety of circumstances beyond their control. Second, horrific suffering often destroys a person, at least psychologically, and prevents them from growing morally, spiritually, and intellectually. Third, many people do not seem to feel God's comforting presence during tragedies. Now, ask yourself, if God exists, why is there so much horrific suffering and so little glorious pleasure? Even after thousands of years of theological reflection, theistic philosophers still have no idea. They just assume that there must be a reason for God allowing evil. For example, Alvin Plantinga of Notre Dame University, one of the most influential theistic philosophers of our time, admitted, many of the attempts to explain why God permits evil seem to me shallow, tepid, and ultimately frivolous. Naturalists, on the other hand, have a plausible explanation. There is no all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing being to intervene. And therefore, facts about triumph and tragedy are much more likely on naturalism than on theism. Number seven, naturalism is the best explanation for the fact that human minds are dependent on the physical brain. Scientific evidence shows that human consciousness is highly dependent upon the brain. In this context, nothing mental happens without something physical happening. That strongly implies that the mind cannot exist independently of physical arrangements of matter. In other words, we do not have a soul. And this is exactly what we would expect if naturalism is true. But if theism is true, then it's possible for minds to exist without physical brains. Also, theism entails the existence of at least one unembodied mind, God. God's mind is not in any sense dependent on physical arrangements of matter. So the dependence of human minds on brains is evidence against the existence of any being who is supposed to have an unembodied mind, including God, and therefore the physical nature of minds is evidence favoring naturalism over theism. Number eight, naturalism is the best explanation for non-resistant non-belief in God. Imagine you're growing up in an orphanage and I told you I had met a man who claims to be your father and who really wants a relationship with you. Days, weeks, even months go by, but you never actually meet your father. You never get a card, letter, phone call. In fact, the only evidence that your father is alive is my claim that he exists. Why haven't you heard from him? 
perhaps your father is ashamed for abandoning you. Or maybe he's a prisoner of war and his captors won't even let him write you. Although you hope your father is alive and wants to meet you, you remain skeptical. Just as you do not believe your father is alive and wants to meet you, there are people who do not believe that God exists. But notice that whatever reasons we might invent to explain your earthly father's absence do not explain their heavenly father's absence. At least some of the people who deny God's existence are non-resistant non-believers. As John Schellenberg explains, their non-belief is not in any way the result of their own emotional or behavioral opposition towards God or relationship with God or any of the apparent implications of such a relationship. Such non-believers are open to having a relationship with God. In fact, they may even want it, but are unable to have such a relationship. But why, if God exists, does that happen? On naturalism, blind nature doesn't care whether anyone believes in God, and so the fact of non-resistant non-believers is hardly surprising. On theism, however, this fact is very surprising. On theism, we would expect a perfectly loving God to always make a meaningful relationship available to those he loves. Number nine, the naturalism is the best explanation for ethical disagreement. The philosophical discipline of ethics is notorious for its controversy. Not only do philosophers disagree over general ethical theory, such as utilitarianism or deontological ethics, they also genuinely disagree about the morality of specific acts, like war, abortion, the death penalty, gun control, and sexual behavior. The problem is not just that people disagree about morality. The problem is also that theists, including Christians, disagree about morality. Now this tends to be very awkward for the Christian. A Christian, at least if he admits that there is genuine ethical disagreement, has to believe both that God wants humans to behave morally and that he has left them in the dark about whether specific kinds of behavior are morally acceptable. On naturalism, however, there is no God just impersonal nature. And impersonal nature gives us even less reason to expect moral agreement than theism does. So ethical disagreement is more probable on naturalism than on theism. So, in sum, we've seen nine lines of evidence that naturalism is true. If Mr. Vandergriff wants us to believe Christian theism instead, then he's first got to provide evidence of his own for Christian theism and then show that it somehow outweighs all of the evidence for naturalism. Unless and until he does that, the naturalist can hardly be blamed for agreeing with philosopher Delos McCown, who wrote, the invisible and the non-existent look very much alike. Thank you. Hello, my name is Kevin Vandergriff, and I will be defending Christian theism against my opponent. I am grateful for our host and technological aficionado, Justin Schieber, and for Mr. Louder's willingness to enter into this debate with me. In this debate, I will defend three main contentions. First, Christian theism is not significantly less simple than specified naturalism. Second, if God exists necessarily, then the prior probability of naturalism, no matter how simple, is zero. 
And third, Christian theism has significantly more explanatory power and scope than specified naturalism. Before I begin to defend these three contentions, let me first define what I mean by God on Christian theism. By God, I mean that there exists a transcendent, personal being that created the physical world and who is maximally powerful, intelligent, and good. Lastly, this God has decisively revealed important aspects of its will for us through the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Please note that Christian theism makes two fundamental predictions that my arguments will confirm. First, a personal being caused the physical world to exist. And second, a physical world should be intrinsically structured toward the positive or optimal realization of moral and aesthetic values. Let's call this a value-generating universe. Please also note that specified naturalism makes two fundamental predictions that my arguments will disconfirm. First, that the universe is eternal and uncaused, and second, that neither nature nor the condition of sentient beings here on earth, or in the universe I would add, is the result of benevolent or malevolent actions on the part of personal beings. Let's call this the hypothesis of an indifferent universe. With that in mind, let's look at my first contention, that Christian theism is not significantly less simple compared to naturalism. Simplicity is a function of two things, modesty and coherence. The more claims a hypothesis makes, the more immodest it is, and thus the less simple it is. The problem for my opponent is that four of his arguments, the argument from biology, pain and pleasure, flourishing and languishing, and triumph and tragedy, presuppose the hypothesis of an indifferent universe, which Paul Draper says is roughly equal in simplicity to theism. This means that Mr. Lauder is incorrect to imply that Christian theism is significantly less simple than specified naturalism, because his entire case cannot be simpler than the most immodest aspect of it. Let's take a look at my second contention, that if God exists necessarily, then it doesn't matter if specified naturalism is simpler than Christian theism. I will give two arguments to think that God exists necessarily, which would entail that naturalism is incoherent and thus ultimately self-defeating, since it presupposes that God is a contingent being. But as Paul Draper writes, if theism were a necessary proposition, and also true, then atheism would be not just false, but self-contradictory, and so theism would have an intrinsic probability of one. Let's look at my third contention. Christian theism has more explanatory power and scope than specified naturalism. Argument 1. God is the best explanation for the origin of the universe. In 2003, three scientists developed the bohr guth and Vilenkin theorem, which shows that any universe, which is on average in a state of cosmic expansion throughout its history, cannot be infinite in the past, but must have a beginning. In 2012, Vilenkin showed that models that are not on average in a state of cosmic expansion fail on other grounds to avert the beginning of the universe. Vilenkin concluded, None of these scenarios can actually be past eternal. All the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. This fact disconfirms naturalism because it predicts that the universe is eternal and uncaused. Moreover, experience and intuition teaches that things that begin to exist have causes. So if the universe began to exist, then the universe must have a cause. But what kind of cause would this be? Well, by the very nature of the case, the cause must transcend the universe, have enormous miraculous power because it created the universe with no prior materials, and be an unembodied mind. Why would it have to be an unembodied mind? Only abstract objects or an unembodied mind can transcend the universe, but we also know that abstract objects can't cause anything. Therefore, it follows the transcendent cause of the universe must be in an unembodied mind. Argument 2. 
God is the best explanation of why space-time and all its contents exist rather than nothing. James Sinclair has developed a novel argument for God's existence, which presupposes the universe is eternal but caused. He writes, Quantum indeterminacy is only resolved through observation called collapsing the wave function. Hence, an outside measurement apparatus must always exist. But cosmologists started to run into a problem when they began to consider the whole universe as a quantum object. What or who outside the universe collapses its wave function? An infinite regress problem develops that can only be resolved by recourse to a conscious and necessary being. William Lane Craig offers yet another reason to think that the cause of an eternal universe is God. I know of no other way to explain how a contingent universe can come from a necessarily existing cause unless the cause is a personal agent who can freely choose to create a contingent reality. Argument 3. God is the best explanation of the applicability of mathematics to the physical world. As William Lane Craig brilliantly stated, how is it that a mathematical theorist like Peter Higgs can sit down at his desk and by poring over mathematical equations predict the existence of a fundamental particle which experimentalists would discover 30 years later after sacrificing thousands of man-hours and billions of dollars. Mathematics is the language of nature. But how is this to be explained? If mathematical objects are abstract entities that are causally isolated from the universe, then their applicability is a lucky coincidence. On the other hand, if mathematical objects are just useful fictions, how is it that nature is written in the language of these fictions? End quote. The theist has a ready explanation. God patterned the universe after a mathematical structure that scientists routinely describe as value-generating, or beautiful, elegant, simple, and complex. Moreover, people often value rationality, and if there is a rational mind par excellence that brought the universe into being, it is not surprising on theism that the universe is intelligible in terms of a cosmic mathematical grid, but it is very surprising on naturalism. Argument 4. God is the best explanation of the discoverability of the universe. What do you need to make cosmic and local discoveries? You need an intelligible universe, a planet with deposits left behind from billions of years of geological and biological evolution to develop advanced technology, intelligent enough creatures to come out of evolution, and most surprising perhaps, you need a planet like Earth that shows up at just the right time and place in the cosmic evolution of the entire universe. Astrophysicist Hugh Ross writes, Our human era is theoretically the earliest and most optimal epoch that allows astronomers to study light from the origin of the universe. They can see light clear back to 0.000028 of its present age. Because of the universe's age, astronomers can directly view 99.9972% of cosmic history and almost behold the instant of cosmic creation." End quote. This and several additional features show that the universe must be fine-tuned in order to be discoverable. But what is value generating about the discoverability of the universe? Well, it allows us to develop technology, which in turn allows us to greatly expand our ability to improve our conditions. Second, being able to understand the universe is widely perceived as intrinsically valuable. Judging by the effort it requires on the part of scientists to pursue fields of advanced physics, our respect for those that do, and the fact that the government spends billions of dollars to fund research on the fundamental structure of the cosmos, and that the public generally supports this. Perhaps even more valuable is that this research has led to the discovery of evidence for the existence of God, which naturalists and Christian theists alike agree is of the utmost potential value. And this is a huge coincidence that Christian theism doesn't need. Argument 5. 
God is the best explanation of why there are embodied, morally responsible agents. Paul Draper writes, One of the most striking facts about the universe human beings inhabit is that it contains not just any life, but embodied moral agents, living beings that have moral duties to others. And because such beings have a distinctive sort of dignity or worth does not raise the probability of their existing on the assumption that naturalism is true, but it does raise the probability of their existing on theism. In addition, moral agency requires moral responsibility, which in turn requires having the right kind of control over our behaviors. Humans have this kind of control because our brains are the most complex things in the universe. Keep in mind that there is no ladder of progress intrinsic to the process of evolution. You can rewind the tape, hit play, and you aren't guaranteed to get embodied, morally responsible agents ever again. Thus, embodied moral agents are not only improbable on naturalism, they are of such high value that they are precisely what you would expect in a value-generating universe predicted by Christian theism. It gets worse for the naturalists. Recently, scientists in the fields of astrophysics, classical cosmology, quantum mechanics, and physics have been stunned to discover that the strengths and quantities that appear in the laws of nature, as well as certain initial conditions that were just put in at the Big Bang, are fine-tuned to a precision hard to imagine to produce the building blocks and environments that embodied moral agents need in order to evolve anywhere in the universe. If any of these constants and quantities or initial conditions were altered by even a hair's breadth, the evolution of life would be physically impossible anywhere in the universe. Paul Draper writes, The fine-tuning data greatly strengthens the argument from embodied moral agents because they show that moral agency is extremely improbable on naturalism. It is only because of this great strengthening that the argument from moral agency can compete in the same league as the argument from evil. Thus, moral agency is extremely unlikely given naturalism. Argument 6. God is the best explanation of moral agents who apprehend necessary moral truths. Charles Darwin once imagined a world where the instinctual moral beliefs of human beings were selected for under the same environmental conditions of that as hive bees. If men were reared under precisely the same conditions as hive bees, there can hardly be a doubt that our unmarried females would, like the worker bees, think it a sacred duty to kill their brothers, and mothers would strive to kill their fertile daughters, and no one would think of interfering. This illustrates the chancy, contingent, and extrinsic relationship between a biological species' instinctual moral beliefs that natural selection happens upon, and what rational beings with enough intelligence discover when they do ethics, namely, some moral facts are necessarily true. It is necessarily wrong to rape, murder, and slander. It is necessarily good to love, become a doctor, and appreciate works of art. But the question immediately arises, if natural selection does not intrinsically select for instinctual moral beliefs amenable to necessarily true reflective moral beliefs, but rather only those beliefs that are beneficial for survival, then how is it that natural selection, unguided, produced moral agents with instinctual moral beliefs that are amenable to necessarily true reflective moral beliefs? The chances are incredibly slim on naturalism, but exactly what you would expect on theism. Argument 7. God is the best explanation of the connection between the flourishing of the kinds of moral agents there are and the necessary moral truths that apply to them. As Greg Gansel has written, not only do we have beings to which necessary moral truths apply, but we have beings that are made up in such a way that doing what is right turns out to be good for them. It contributes to their flourishing rather than their languishing. Maybe only one in ten universes that are moral and that they have the right sorts of beings that are such that moral goodness and the flourishing of those beings involved converge. The evidence that we live in a value-generating universe is truly becoming overwhelming.
Argument 8. God is the best explanation of why there are self-aware beings. Theism entails that self-awareness exists, whereas naturalism does not. Since self-awareness does exist, it follows that self-awareness is evidence favoring theism over naturalism. J.P. Moreland captures the reason self-awareness supports theism over naturalism better than anyone. The appearance of finite consciousness, qua finite, requires explanation, and theism may employ the explanatory resources of its basic ontological inventory, for example, consciousness and God, for that explanation, because consciousness per se is ontologically basic, but not so for a naturalist. Argument 9. God is the best explanation of the historical facts about Jesus of Nazareth. According to William Lane Craig, New Testament historians have developed something of a consensus that Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority to stand and speak in God's place, and that in himself the kingdom of God had come. And as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracle workings and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of this claim is his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then we have a divine miracle on our hands and evidence for the existence of God. I realize that church leaders and members have a reputation of saying you just accept the resurrection of Jesus on blind faith or not, but there are actually four facts that have been established and accepted as true by the majority of New Testament historians today, whether they be atheist, theist, liberal, or conservative, on the basis of objective historical criteria like independent multiple attestation, embarrassment, dissimilarity, and the like. The four facts are as follows. 1. After dying from crucifixion, Jesus was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. 2. On the Sunday following the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. 3. On multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. 4. The original disciples believed that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. The question that presents itself to us, then, is what is the best explanation of these four facts? In his book, Justifying Historical Descriptions, historian C.B. McCullough lists six tests which historians use in determining what is the best explanation for some given set of facts. The hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead passes all six of these tests. First, it has great explanatory scope. It explains why the tomb was found empty, why the disciples saw post-mortem appearances of Jesus, and why the Christian faith came into being. Second, it has great explanatory power. It explains why the body of Jesus was gone, why people repeatedly saw Jesus alive despite his earlier public execution, and so forth. Third, it is plausible, since Jesus' messianic and divine self-understanding supercharges the religio-historical context with miraculous anticipation and concrete meaning, the resurrection serves as divine confirmation of those radical claims. Fourth, it is not ad hoc or contrived. It requires only one additional hypothesis, namely that God exists, and I have already given evidence to think that God exists. Fifth, it is in accord with accepted beliefs. The hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead doesn't in any way conflict with the accepted belief that people don't rise naturally from the dead. The Christian accepts that belief as wholeheartedly as he accepts the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead. Sixth, it far outstrips any of its rival hypotheses in meeting conditions 1 through 5. Down through history, various alternative explanations of the facts have been offered. For example, the conspiracy hypothesis, the apparent death hypothesis, the hallucination hypothesis, and so forth. Such hypotheses have been almost universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. None of these naturalistic hypotheses succeeds as well as the resurrection hypothesis. Argument 10. 
God is the best explanation for the worthwhileness of life. If we are in a value-generating universe, then we would expect self-aware beings with a right to life to have enough positive emotion, engagement, relationships, and meaning and accomplishment in their lives to make it worth living. Indeed, in general, human life is on balance worth living. If this were not the case, then the following would be true. 1. We would have a moral obligation to no longer have children. 2. Humans would be responsible for any and all suffering their children undergo. 3. We should be witnessing mass suicides. And 4. We should expect the happiest people alive today to be only in those countries that are the most developed and most well-off financially. The problem is is that none of these things are true. Moreover, because tragedies do occur, we would expect God to make humans highly resilient and adaptable to horrific tragedies, even if God has reasons for allowing them. This is exactly what we find. Psychologists have amassed strong evidence that humans are initially very troubled by tragedies, but are hardwired to be resilient and overcome them with positive emotions, in general. Because we don't understand all of God's reasons for permitting tragedies, and perhaps we never fully will, we would also expect God to set up a mechanism whereby we are comforted in the face of tragedies. Not surprisingly, psychologists have found that people are comforted in the face of seemingly random and pointless tragedies if they can find meaning and purpose in them. Finding meaning in life events leads to more positive emotions, which in turn leads to a greater ability to find meaning and purpose. Psychologists call this the upward spiral of greater well-being. Fortunately for my case, psychologists have also found that humans are hardwired to find meaning and purpose in tragic events. In summary then, I've presented a cumulative case to think Christian theism has more explanatory power and scope than specified naturalism based on the origin of the universe, the contingency of the universe, the applicability of mathematics, discoverability, embodied moral agents and fine-tuning, moral belief in necessary moral truths, moral truths and flourishing, self-aware beings, the resurrection of Jesus, and the worthwhileness of life. If Jeffrey wants us to believe that naturalism is true, he must tear down all ten of the arguments that I presented, and in my next speech I will tear down the nine arguments he has made to think that God does not exist. Though if you are paying attention, I have overwhelmed four of Jeffrey's arguments within the positive case I have already made, but more on that later. In this speech, I would like to review those two basic contentions that I've offered to defend and see how they fared in light of Mr. Vandergriff's opening statement. First, I argued that naturalism is a simpler explanation than Christian theism. In his speech, Mr. Vandergriff agrees that intrinsic probability is determined by scope, modesty, and nothing else. He also agrees that what he calls generic naturalism and supernaturalism have equal intrinsic probabilities. And I think he even agrees that generic naturalism is intrinsically much more probable than Christian theism. But, he says, four of my arguments depend upon a more specific version of naturalism, what he calls specified naturalism, and Christian theism is not significantly less simple than specified naturalism. But this is false. First, what about the universe being eternal? Generic naturalism says nothing about the age of physical reality. For example, it's compatible with both an eternal universe and with a universe that is finitely old but which has existed for all of time. Second, what about the universe being uncaused? Generic naturalism entails this. Third, what about the hypothesis of indifference? If you look at the diagram on my slide, what you'll see is that the naturalism circle is completely inside the bigger hypothesis of indifference circle. What that means is this. If generic naturalism is true, the hypothesis of indifference has to be true. So none of my arguments need a more specific version of naturalism. They all use generic naturalism. And so my first contention stands. 
Christian theism makes more claims and significantly more specific claims than naturalism, and so there are significantly more ways for Christian theism to be false than for naturalism to be false. But this means that before we examine the evidence, naturalism is much more likely to be true than Christian theism. He says, but the simplicity of naturalism doesn't matter because it's a necessary truth that God exists. But his two arguments for God's necessity fail, so the simplicity of naturalism does matter. Let's move on then to my second basic contention. Naturalism is a more accurate explanation than Christian theism for many facts. Mr. Vandegrift argued that Christian theism is more accurate than naturalism for 10 facts. First, what about the origin of the universe? This can be a very confusing and counterintuitive subject. On the one hand, besides the universe, virtually everything with a beginning has a cause. This seems to support the idea that the universe has a cause. On the other hand, besides the universe, virtually everything with a beginning comes from pre-existing materials. This seems to support the idea that the universe cannot have a cause. And if Mr. Vandegrift argues that the universe is different and so didn't need to come from pre-existing materials, then I can argue that the universe is different and so didn't need a cause. But there's another point which I think breaks the tie. Mr. Vandegrift's explanation leads to self-contradiction. For example, when did God decide to create space-time? As philosopher Keith Parsons points out, to create implies an act. An act must be initiated. This implies a time before, of, and after initiation. In other words, Mr. Vandegrift's position entails that before space-time existed, God decided to create space-time. But there cannot be a time before space-time existed, just like you can't go north of the North Pole. So the fact that space-time exists at all is evidence favoring naturalism over theism. His next argument is that God is the best explanation for why space-time exists rather than nothing. Let me give three responses to this. First, this was refuted by my first argument for naturalism. Again, if natural, supernaturalism is true, it's a very real possibility that space-time doesn't exist. But if naturalism is true, something physical has to exist. Since space-time is physical, the fact that it exists is evidence for naturalism and against supernaturalism. Second, he mentions quantum indeterminacy. But since Mr. Vandergriff has given us no reason to believe that an actual infinite cannot exist, there's no reason to reject an infinite regress on naturalism. But if theism is true, why should there be quantum indeterminacy at all? Third, he argues space-time needs an, ex an explanation because it's contingent. Philosopher Felipe Leon has identified two naturalistic options. First, there could be an infinite regress of contingent universes, where each contingent universe is explained by another one. Second, our universe could be factually necessary, so that its existence is partially explained by its own nature, which is uncaused, beginningless, independent, and freestanding, and partially explained by virtue of other things that happen to exist, which is that, on naturalism, there's nothing to knock space-time out of existence. Next, let's turn to his evidence about the discoverability of the universe. This is a brand new argument, and I think the jury is still out, but let's assume that this is some evidence favoring theism over naturalism. The fact that the universe is discoverable, however, hardly exhausts what we know about our ability to understand it. We also know that so much of our universe is intelligible without any appeal to supernatural agency. 
Given that our universe is discoverable, this is much more probable if naturalism is true and all supernaturalistic explanations are false than it is if theism is true and supernatural explanations could be true. This evidence for naturalism outweighs the discoverability evidence for theism. Next, what about the applicability of mathematics to the world? Three comments. First, this argument adds nothing to the last one. I think that Mr. Vandergriff has double counted the evidence. Part of what it means for the universe to be discoverable is the applicability of mathematics, and so this argument adds nothing to the last one. Second, mathematical entities are applicable to anything that is countable or extensive, like space-time, mass, and so forth, precisely because they are abstract, as philosopher Evan Fales points out. Third, if Mr. Vandergriff thinks this is just a happy coincidence on naturalism, I would simply challenge him to describe what a world would look like where mathematics was not applicable. For example, can he describe what a world would look like if, say, set theory didn't apply? If he can't do that, then there's no reason to take this argument seriously. He next argued that the existence of self-aware beings is some evidence for theism. I agree. This is a parallel argument with my argument about the existence of physical matter. They cancel each other out. Next, he argues that embodied moral agents are strong evidence for theism over naturalism. I have four objections. First, this argument requires that we have libertarian free will. I don't know if we have it or not, and he hasn't shown that we do. Second, we're not in a position to assess the probability of a life-permitting universe on naturalism. In order to justify the claim that our universe is fine-tuned for life, this argument depends upon counting the number of possible universes with different values for the anthropic constants, but with the same laws of physics. But why restrict the set of possible universes to only those with the same laws of physics? Why not also include possible universes with different physics? Here's the problem. If we can vary both the constants and the laws of physics themselves, then our probability calculations need to consider all possible combinations. Not only has no one yet done that, but it's hard to see how this could be done since the number of combinations is infinite. The upshot is that we have no good reason to believe that a life-permitting universe is improbable on naturalism. Third, even if we do, this theistic evidence is offset by naturalistic evidence. Given that there are moral agents, the following facts are more probable on naturalism than on theism. A, so much of the universe is hostile to life. B, embodied moral agents are the result of evolution. C, the only known moral agents are embodied. Their minds are dependent on their brains. D, our universe is not teeming with embodied moral agents, including moral agents much more impressive than humans. And E, the variety and frequency of conditions that severely limit our freedom. The upshot is that once the evidence about moral agency is fully stated, it's far from obvious it favors theism. As for his next two arguments, the ones about moral perception and moral flourishing, I'm going to reply to both at the same time. In his book, Darwinian Natural Right, Larry Arnhart argues that human morality is rooted in the biological nature of human beings. This biological nature leads to over 20 universal human desires. Whatever satisfies these desires is naturally good for humans. These natural desires, which include parental care, sexual identity, and mating injustice, are universal for human beings. 
Arnhardt's ethical naturalism predicts both, one, that people know that satisfying these desires is good, and two, that doing so contributes to our flourishing. So these facts don't add to the case for theism. Also, given that people can perceive moral truths, the fact that people often disagree about those truths is much more probable on naturalism than on theism. Next, what about the fact human life is worthwhile? This is an evidence for theism because, given that humans are the products of evolution, our resilience is just as likely on naturalism as it is on theism. Finally, let's turn to the resurrection. We can show this is false using a formula known as Bayes' theorem. Bayes' theorem says that the probability of a hypothesis like the resurrection is equal to its prior probability multiplied by its explanatory power. So let's start with prior probability. Even if God exists, and even if we know with certainty that God exists, the resurrection is an extraordinary claim. In fact, it is so extraordinary that before we look at the historical evidence, the probability of the resurrection is virtually zero. All of our evidence for the laws of statistical mechanics is evidence for the complete post-mortem decomposition of Jesus's body and hence evidence against Jesus's resurrection. The argument goes like this. Premise one, 99.99999% of our observations relevant to dead bodies shows that God wills that they do not rise from the dead. Premise two, Jesus was dead. Therefore, three, Prior to investigation, it is 99.9999% probable that God wills that Jesus does not rise from the dead. Let's move on to explanatory power. The alleged evidence for the resurrection is not extraordinary. Two comments. First, the evidence we have is not the evidence we need. Contrary to what my opponent claims, the resurrection can't be the best explanation because it isn't an explanation. It says nothing about his facts. For example, if we knew nothing about Jesus except that he rose from the dead, we would never predict an empty tomb or post-mortem appearances because the resurrection hypothesis by itself tells us nothing about what Jesus did after his death. Second, the evidence we need is not the evidence we have. The resurrection hypothesis is the claim that God took Jesus' corpse and transformed it into a living, powerful, incorruptible, and glorious body which can never again suffer illness, injury, or death. But Mr. Vandergriff has given no evidence that Jesus' body was transformed into a supernatural body which can never again suffer illness, injury, or death. To sum up, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The claim that God raised Jesus from the dead is an extraordinary claim. We don't have extraordinary evidence for the resurrection. Therefore, Jesus stayed dead. Let's move on then to my other evidence for naturalism, which hasn't already been mentioned. One was pain and pleasure, which I think is one of the most powerful lines of evidence for naturalism. This clearly plays a biological role, but from a moral point of view, it looks quite random. Mr. Vandergriff hasn't said anything about that argument yet. Next was flourishing and languishing. More than 99% of all species that have ever lived are now extinct. While alive, most languish much more than they flourish. This hasn't been yet addressed. Another argument was about the distribution of triumph and tragedy. Again, as Paul Draper points out, 
Triumph is the exception and tragedy the rule. This hasn't yet been addressed. Finally, we have the fact of non-resistant non-belief. In fact, this debate is a good case study in how non-resistant non-belief is possible. It's not just that the evidence doesn't unambiguously point towards Christian theism. It's that we have clear evidence against it. This is very much more probable on naturalism than on Christianity, which teaches that our eternal destiny hinges on what we believe in this life. This argument hasn't yet been addressed. Also, notice that some of my other arguments are also related to divine hiddenness. One, ethical disagreement just is ethical hiddenness. Two, the success of naturalistic explanations just is scientific hiddenness. Three, the fact that many people do not seem to feel God's comforting presence during tragedies we can call suffering hiddenness. So, on balance, when you weigh the evidence, I think the evidence is clearly on the side of naturalism and therefore think naturalism is much more likely to be true than Christian theism. Let's look at my first contention that Christian theism is roughly equal to naturalism in terms of simplicity. If you'll notice on my slide, Christian theism makes six specific claims, and the hypothesis of indifference, or HI, makes six specific claims as well. Without HI, generic naturalism doesn't have enough content to predict facts about triumph and tragedy. But then, as Michael Tooley says, it is far from clear why the prior probability of HI should be greater than the prior probability of theism. If Mr. Lauder thinks his background knowledge is doing the predicting, then I can do the same thing with supernaturalism to make my case. Lastly, since HI is so immodest and consistent with supernaturalism, generic naturalism cannot entail HI. Thus, specified naturalism and Christian theism are roughly equal in simplicity. If Mr. Lauder still disagrees with me on this, then this notion of simplicity should be rejected because the probabilities it yields are too dependent upon arbitrary choices made by the theorist and are therefore not objective. Let's look at my second contention that God exists necessarily, and so even if naturalism is simpler, it doesn't matter. Let's look at objections to my argument from the origin of the universe. Mr. Lauder says everything that begins except the universe needs a cause, but this imagines the universe to exist tenselessly, timelessly, but with a beginning edge like a shuttlecock, which is one of two ways that Mr. Lauder seems to agree the universe has to be eternal on naturalism. I agree that everything in such a universe would need a cause, but not necessarily the universe itself. The problem for Mr. Lauder is that the board Guthalankum theorem shows that the origin of the universe was absolute in the sense that all matter and energy, even physical space and time themselves, came into being a finite time ago, and that would apply to his entire tenseless shuttlecock universe. Mr. Lauder says everything has to have a material cause. Obviously, the origin of the universe cannot have a material cause. That would be physically impossible, but that is a problem for Mr. Lauder's case, not mine, because the universe can have an efficient cause. In any case, not everything that begins needs a material cause. An efficient cause produces more space all the time in the universe in the absence of a material cause. So why can't the universe have an efficient cause but no material cause? Indeed, Mr. Lauder's position implies the absurdity that the universe had neither an efficient nor a material cause. Moreover, Mr. Lauder's claim would render it inexplicable why we don't observe signatures from collisions with other bubble universes beginning to exist without any kind of cause whatsoever. What makes nothingness so discriminatory? Mr. Lauder says God's creating the universe in 
involves a contradiction. No, God could have created physical time from within an undifferentiated metaphysical time, or if God is timeless without the universe, we can say that the universe comes into being at the first moment of time, and in virtue of his causal relationship with the universe, God enters into time at that moment as well. This isn't special pleading because physicists routinely talk of effects being simultaneous with their causes. Let's look at objections to my argument from why there is something rather than nothing. Mr. Lauder seems to agree with the key premise of this argument. Everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. But Mr. Lauder says I'm assuming an infinite cannot exist and that the universe cannot be factually necessary. No, I am not. The role of an observer in quantum indeterminacy shows that the universe cannot exist in a determinate state out of the necessity of its own nature, especially since observers evolve later in the universe. And this is true even if the universe is eternal, whether because of an infinite regress or an actually infinite number of events. Therefore, it must have an external cause, namely a transcendent, necessary, and conscious being. The infinite regress Sinclair was referring to was explanatory, not ontological, and it isn't necessary to the key premise at all. Thus, we have two reasons to think God exists necessarily, and that Mr. Lauder begs the question now when he claims that the universe is intelligible without appeal to supernatural agency. Let's look at my third contention, that Christian theism has more explanatory power and scope than naturalism. Here, I'll address Mr. Lauder's nine arguments. One, does physical matter support naturalism? No, by definition, God's goodness entails that God would always do God's best. While a world with just God in it is a good world, it is not better than a world with God plus a value-generating universe. Thus, theism entails the existence of physical matter so defined. This cancels Mr. Lauder's argument out and reveals that Mr. Lauder doesn't really have an argument here at all, but instead is making a prediction of his hypothesis that says an eternal and uncaused universe exists, but he hasn't given any positive reasons to think such a universe exists. Yet another reason the bare existence of the universe doesn't provide evidence for naturalism. Two, does a hostile universe support naturalism? Since I have identified a value-generating universe as God's goal, where embodied moral agents are just one of those goals, we can examine whether God has rationally accomplished this goal by using the known laws of nature. Mr. Lauder appears to think not, given the hostility of the universe. However, from an astronomical point of view, the earliest a planet like Earth could have appeared is when it did appear, 9.2 billion years after the beginning of the universe. This is true for at least three scientific reasons. One, it would take 9.2 billion years to produce life-essential elements not given in the Big Bang. Two, the same dangerous radiating supernova events that are required to produce these life-essential elements also preclude life in the universe until after it has expanded for 9.2 billion years, allowing the radiation to dissipate. And three, the universe has to be as big and as packed full of stuff as it is for its mass density ratio to be fine-tuned to generate the right expansion rate and volume necessary for all this life-permitting cosmic evolution to take place. This shows that God has acted rationally and efficiently by front-loading the universe to bring about a planet like Earth to support moral agents as early as physically possible. Besides, what sort of God would actualize a creation which would require periodic intervention to accomplish its goals? Only one with less than perfect knowledge, power, and goodness. What about evolution, though? Evolution is actually evidence for theism for at least two reasons. First, if unguided, the known mechanisms of natural selection acting on random genetic mutations operate too slowly to produce intelligent life. Renowned evolutionary biologist Francisco Ayala has recently calculated that the probability of only a quarter of the steps necessary to get intelligent species from evolution on an Earth-like planet anywhere in the universe is less than 10 to the minus 1 millionth power. This number is so tiny 
that the evolution of intelligent life is exceedingly unlikely to have occurred even once in the universe. Second, a number of terrestrial and solar system related reasons account for the necessity of a four and a half billion year delay, which implies that the universe was ready to serve as a home for human beings at the earliest imaginable date on just the right planet to make discoveries. This is incredibly more likely on theism than naturalism. Thus, the universe's astoundingly robust, efficient, and gapless formational economy provides yet another argument for God's existence. Thus, we have two defeaters to think it isn't surprising that the universe is not teeming with embodied moral agents, and two defeaters and one outweighing argument now to think it isn't surprising that so much of the universe is intelligible without appeal to supernatural agency. Moreover, I think evolution was probably God's only option. Many assume without argument that God could create any biological creatures God wants to without using evolution. However, this can only be the case if biological creatures have an intrinsic essence. In that case, biological creatures will have the same behavioral dispositions whether or not God uses evolution to create them. However, it is the consensus view in the philosophy of biology that biological creatures have a historical essence acquired from evolution rather than an intrinsic essence and that this is a metaphysically necessary truth like water is H2O. Therefore, God had to use evolution because it would have been metaphysically impossible to miraculously create a biological creature without an intrinsic essence to behave according to its intrinsic essence. This would be like creating a prime minister that is a prime number. Thus, it isn't surprising on theism that embodied moral agents are the result of evolution and why our universe isn't teeming with moral agents more impressive than ourselves. This point also defeats Mr. Lauder's fourth and fifth arguments since they are dependent on the assumption that God didn't have to use evolution. Let me offer more objections to Mr. Lauder's fourth and fifth arguments. A number of philosophers today defend the position that the laws of nature in the actual world are the laws of nature in any possible world as the best explanation for the regularity we observe and because there aren't any laws of nature in biology. But this entails that God could not fine-tune humans so that they only feel pain and pleasure when it is morally necessary. And it would render the facts we know about languishing and flourishing unsurprising on theism since ecosystem stability requires a means to to regulate the levels of each category of organisms. Recall that Mr. Lauder quoted Larry Arnhart's work as an objection to the two arguments I gave, which showed that our instinctual moral beliefs and desires predominantly contribute to both survival and reproduction, as well as flourishing, because they track independently given morally necessary truths. However, Mr. Lauder's quotation of Arnhart actually supports my arguments further. Indeed, the whole point of Darwin's thought experiment was to show that a species' instinctual moral desires and beliefs can come apart from reflective necessary moral truths and goods, and that would make objective flourishing biologically impossible, or nearly so. Thus, Mr. Lauder needs to address both of my arguments, especially since they outweigh Mr. Lauder's argument from pain and pleasure not always being morally necessary. Lastly, we should feel relieved that of the 8.7 million different species that have ever existed on Earth, more than 99.9999% of them lack the capacity for any one of the five levels of self-awareness that have been identified. This means that if they suffered at all, they didn't suffer to the extent humans do. Even those that are self-aware probably aren't as self-aware as humans, which also implies that they suffer somewhat less than humans. Moreover, I think that since animals aren't persons, they don't have a right to life and are not wronged when they languish from natural causes. 6. Mr. Lauder claims that triumph is the exception and tragedy is the rule. 
We've heard no evidence to think tragedies are the rule, and if they were the rule, then that implies that life wouldn't be worthwhile. But I gave four arguments to think life is worthwhile, and Mr. Louder never responded. Moreover, to paraphrase Paul Draper, without the hypothesis of indifference, you cannot calculate the probability of tragedies given atheism. Lastly, if God had to use evolution, then it isn't surprising if natural selection was blind to God's morally sufficient reasons that would justify those anomalous cases in the world that appear to us as pointless types of evil. What about horrific suffering destroying a person? Mr. Lauder agrees with me now in his last speech that horrific suffering doesn't destroy people, but he goes on to claim that evolution would make humans this way on naturalism. However, evolution didn't have to make us this resilient. Consider the fact that certain protozoans and bacteria regularly engage in programmed cell death or suicide when exposed to stresses such as heat that they're fully capable of overcoming. What about God not comforting people? I gave a detailed response to this and Mr. Louder never responded. Moreover, feeling God's presence in the midst of intense suffering that God has good reason not to relieve would probably only spark resentment and serve to block future positive relationships with the young, immature, and emotionally angry. From the victim's perspective, it would be like a police officer watching a woman get raped and not doing anything about it. Thus, the indirect mechanism of comfort that I argued for is a wiser policy, and this shows that Mr. Lauder's argument commits the fallacy of false alternatives. This shows that my argument from the worthwhileness of life still stands and outweighs Mr. Lauder's triumph and tragedy argument. 7. Does mind-brain dependence support naturalism? Any soul that acts in the physical world would by definition be performing a miracle. However, this probably requires maximal power, but it is logically impossible for God to create another maximally powerful being. That would be like saying there are two everythings. Thus it is impossible, or at least improbable, to think that God could have created conscious life independently of non-conscious life with a soul. However, the fact that consciousness is probably an emergent property fundamentally different from non-conscious matter is itself evidence for theism over naturalism. This also explains the variety and frequency of conditions that severely limit our freedom on theism. Would this defeat my own argument from embodied moral agents since it precludes libertarian free will? No, because according to the majority of experts who are either compatibilists or semi-compatibilists, moral responsibility doesn't require libertarian free will, but only control via a reasons-responsive mechanism. If Mr. Lauder wants to defend the minority position of incompatibilism, he can do that, but so far he hasn't. 8. What about ethical disagreement? This assumes that God has access to moral reasons we haven't already discovered for ourselves. Otherwise, God's telling us reasons we already know wouldn't resolve any disagreement at all. But this is highly unlikely because morality is independent of God. However, if God knows of moral reasons beyond our ken that would settle ethical disagreements, then how much more likely is it that God has morally sufficient reasons beyond our ken that would undercut all of Mr. Lauder's arguments? Second, several ethicists believe both that some moral truths are objective and that some controversial ethical questions have intrinsically indeterminate answers, just like the questions concerning concepts of baldness and redness. This implies that some moral disagreement is inevitable, God or no God. Third, humans already have enough room to grow based on the moral facts they do know. 9. What about divine hiddenness? This argument assumes that the evidence for and against God is exactly balanced. Mr. Lauder hasn't shown this yet. Moreover, the absence of evidence would be evidence of God's absence only if we should expect to have more evidence than we in fact do have if God existed. In practical terms, what this means is, if God exists, should we expect 
expect to have more evidence than those 10 lines of evidence I gave in my opening speech? No. What good would it do anyways? Well, Mr. Lauder says there are people who appear to be non-resistant, but notice he just asserted that. Moreover, Mr. Lauder presupposes that a meaningful relationship requires being aware of the other person. But why think this is true? Besides, why would there even be 10 lines of evidence for God's existence on naturalism? In sum, then, Mr. Lauder's nine points in favor of naturalism reduced to five independent arguments, three dependent arguments, and one argument that is really a prediction. I have offered defeaters for Mr. Lauder's entire positive case and all the understated evidence my positive case allegedly suffered from, and shown that naturalism isn't more probable than Christian theism in terms of simplicity, and reestablished six positive arguments for my case, two of which show that God exists necessarily, and thus theism has a prior probability of one, and added another argument from the formational economy of the universe to my case. In my next speech, I will reestablish the remaining five arguments in my positive case for Christian theism against Mr. Lauder's defeaters. Let's again review my two basic contentions. First, I argued that naturalism is a simpler explanation than Christianity. What about the hypothesis of indifference? It's the view that neither the nature nor the condition of sentient beings on earth results from benevolent or malevolent actions performed by non-human persons. The first point on his slide isn't needed for any of my arguments, while his last five points are entailed by naturalism. The upshot is that naturalism is a more modest hypothesis than Christian theism. For that reason alone, naturalism is intrinsically more probable than Christian theism. Again, he tries to make the intrinsic probability of naturalism irrelevant by claiming that God exists necessarily for two reasons. First, he says, the universe has an absolute beginning. I asked, when did God decide to create space-time? He said, maybe God created it in metaphysical time, which preceded physical time. But this is one, ad hoc, and two, incompatible with a timeless being. He says, Events can be simultaneous with their causes, but one, the beginning of time can't be simultaneous with a timeless state, and two, that would mean that God began to exist. What about the BGV theorem? Two points. First, there are equally well-qualified authorities, such as Sean Carroll, who think the BGV theory does not show the universe has an absolute beginning. Second, physical reality does not have a beginning. William Lane Craig says, out of nothing, nothing comes. This suggests that creation out of nothing is impossible. As philosopher Felipe Leon explains, everything that begins to exist has a material cause of its existence, which means that it's made from pre-existing stuff, whether material or immaterial. This suggests the following argument. Premise 1. Physical reality was either made out of God, some eternal stuff distinct from God, or it wasn't made. 2. But physical reality was not made out of God, or some eternal stuff distinct from God. 3. Therefore, physical reality wasn't made. 4. If physical reality wasn't made, then physical reality is uncaused. 5. Therefore, physical reality is uncaused. Remember, Mr. Vandergriff also argued that God exists necessarily because the universe requires an external cause because of quantum indeterminacy. But that argument assumes that 1. A wave function collapse happens, and 2. Observers play a role. And Mr. Vandergriff hasn't defended either of these assumptions. There are many interpretations of quantum mechanics, and most of them do not involve collapsing wave functions and observers. And, as William Lane Craig points out, quote, no one knows which, if any, of them is the correct interpretation, quote. Let's move on to my second contention that naturalism is a more accurate explanation than Christianity. 
First, the general point. What we just heard in the last speech was a bizarre defense of a sectarian version of theism we may call naturalistic theism, which posits an impotent God with latent deistic tendencies. This view has two parts. One, the laws of nature in the actual world are the laws of nature in any possible world. And two, most physical events are not the result of God's direct intervention. Almost all of Mr. Vandergriff's objections to the evidence for naturalism presuppose naturalistic theism. So any problems with it are equally problems for those objections. And I think there are three such problems. First, he's confusing what's physically possible with what's metaphysically possible. God isn't limited by the laws of nature. Second, if the laws of nature are metaphysically necessary, then this contradicts the assumptions needed for his arguments from the discoverability of the universe, self-aware beings, evolution, and embodied moral agency. That would mean it is metaphysically necessary that we have a discoverable life-permitting universe which evolved embodied self-aware beings that are morally responsible for their actions. Third, notice that the factual necessity of these laws isn't probable on theism, but it is virtually certain on naturalism. Next, what about my evidence from physical matter? He says God's existence entails the existence of a value-generating universe. Two objections. First, even if God's goodness requires a value-generating world, it doesn't require a physical universe. Second, God's existence is not certain on supernaturalism, so physical matter is still evidence favoring naturalism over theism. Regarding the universe's hostility to life, all his objections assume naturalistic theism. Neither the hostile conditions of the universe nor any interventions are required on theism. God could have designed a universe with different physics which didn't require these hostile conditions. I also pointed out that science has been successful in explaining so much without the supernatural. He says, this begs the question. Not at all. I'm not claiming there aren't or can't be scientific explanations which favor theism. Rather, the vast majority of correct scientific explanations don't appeal to the supernatural. As for evolution, he grants the fact of evolution, but relies upon naturalistic theism. But God didn't have to create the exact set of animals we have with intrinsic essences. He says, unguided evolution is too slow to produce intelligent life. But one, it's ad hoc to say God would intervene to produce intelligent life, but not intervene to prevent hostile conditions in the universe. Two, this problem applies just as much to naturalistic theism as it does to naturalism. And three, this is based upon an evidentially worthless appeal to authority because I can quote equally well-qualified authorities who disagree. His argument about the formational economy of the universe is pure bluster. The fact that life appeared billions of years after the Big Bang is more probable on naturalism than on theism. Moving on to pain and pleasure, his only response was naturalistic theism. Facts about pain and pleasure are very much more probable on naturalism than if an all-powerful God exists. His response to flourishing and languishing also relies upon naturalistic theism. He says this is required for ecosystem stability, but that's false if an all-powerful God exists. He says, but other animals don't feel as much pain as humans and don't have a right to life. But given the facts of evolution and mind-brain dependence, it's highly likely that humans and closely related animals share very similar mental states. Regarding triumph and tragedy, four points. First, consider, for example, a mother who lost both of her children on the same day, just a month after her husband died. Stories like this happen across the globe every day, while it's rare to find similar cases of triumphs. 
Second, while we do seem hardwired to believe that life has meaning, this evolutionary mechanism can be overridden by horrific suffering, often destroying people. Third, regarding God comforting people, he says that God made us resilient instead of directly comforting people, which would spark resentment. I don't buy that. That's like saying that if a five-year-old daughter has to get chemotherapy, a loving father would say, well, I raised her to be tough, rather than directly comforting her during chemotherapy because she might resent him. Fourth, we can calculate the probabilities because theism entails, whereas naturalism lacks, supernatural persons who can intervene in tragedies. He grants the fact of mind-brain dependence, but he says, again, God couldn't do it differently, and again, I disagree. God doesn't have to create maximally powerful beings in order to create unembodied minds who can act in the physical world. He asks, how do you get consciousness on naturalism? I already said that mental properties are evidence for theism. But given that human consciousness exists, the fact that it's dependent upon brains favors naturalism. Next, what about the types and distribution of moral agents? His only objection was, evolution was God's only option, which I've already refuted. An omnipotent being could easily create moral agents much more impressive than humans. I also pointed out that the variety and frequency of conditions that severely limit our freedom favors naturalism. Next, consider ethical disagreement. He agrees morality doesn't depend on God, and he admits genuine ethical disagreement exists, but he tries to explain it away with naturalistic theism. I disagree. If the Bible reported Jesus explicitly taking a stand on, say, abortion, it's very likely that would decrease disagreement about that topic among Christians. He says, some ethical questions have intrinsically indeterminate answers. Fine, but then why, didn't God, why doesn't God make that known? A loving father doesn't let his kids have genuine disagreements about what he wants, especially if his kids start killing each other because of these disagreements. Finally, let's turn to non-resistant non-belief. I think Mr. Vandegrift misunderstands the concept. Not all non-believers are familiar with his evidence. Those who are familiar may honestly believe his evidence fails, and that is the case even if God exists because they could be honestly mistaken. This problem for theism is made even worse by the fact of former believers, people who were on the right track when they lost their belief. So, in sum, I think we've got 13 lines of evidence for naturalism plus the anti-creation argument. We have one, maybe two lines of evidence for theism and inconclusive evidence for Christianity. And so I think, on balance, that naturalism is much more probable than Christianity. Let's look at my first contention about simplicity. I'm gratified Mr. Lauder agrees that his hypothesis entails five claims, but he also needs to add the factual necessity of the universe, which means that we both make six claims, and that entails Christian theism is equal in simplicity to naturalism. What about my second contention that God exists necessarily? He says metaphysical time is ad hoc and incompatible with a timeless being. If his argument about timeless causes is correct, and my argument about the origin of the universe is correct, then metaphysical time is implied by our background knowledge, which doesn't make it ad hoc. Yes, it is incompatible with a timeless being, but my argument works with either a temporal or timeless cause. He says timeless causes are incoherent and God began to exist. No, God is causally but not temporally prior to creation. He becomes temporal when he creates at the moment of creation. God wouldn't begin to exist because there is a state of affairs in the actual world in which God exists timelessly without creation. What about the BGV theorem? The majority of experts, including Sean Carroll, accept the BGV theorem. Rather, Carroll thinks his model of the universe avoids one of its assumptions, but the Lincoln showed in 2012 that 
that Carroll's model fails on other grounds to avert the absolute beginning of the universe. Mr. Lauder's anti-creation argument fails because first, I showed more space begins to exist without prior existing materials, and he never responded. Second, it presents a false dilemma because the potentiality for creation out of nothing lay in the power of God to create it, not stuff distinct from or pantheistically out of God. He never responded to my other two objections that defeat this argument as well. He says it is uncertain that observers play a role in wave function collapse. Granted, but this shows that theism is a fruitful research program, and besides, according to the BGV theorem, the universe cannot exist by the necessity of its own nature. Thus, the universe isn't factually necessary, naturalism is impotent as an explanation for why there is something rather than nothing, and for why the universe originated out of nothing a finite time ago. What about my third contention that Christian theism has more explanatory power and scope? He incorrectly defines naturalistic theism. According to Howard Van Til, naturalistic theists claim that God is impotent because God cannot do miracles, and they take no stance on the status of the laws of nature. Thus, by definition, I am a supernaturalistic theist because from the beginning I have argued for an efficient, value-generating universe wherein God has already performed miracles where it was rational and possible to do so. Let's look at Mr. Lauder's three errors in logic about necessity. First, he claims I confuse physical with metaphysical necessity. Virtually no other philosopher besides Mr. Lauder disagrees with me that it is logically impossible for an omnipotent God to do metaphysically impossible acts like change necessary laws. Second, he claims necessary laws undercut some of my arguments. Even if the actual laws are necessary, virtually no other philosopher besides Mr. Lauder thinks that entails the constants, quantities, and initial conditions of the universe have to be necessary as well. Moreover, evolution can still be intrinsically chancy on this view, and that is all I need for my arguments to work. He claims the laws of nature exist necessarily. The counterfactuals of laws may be necessary in their truth value, but Jeff hasn't shown that they exist necessarily. Therefore, despite his trying to poison the well, I am a supernaturalistic theist, and Mr. Lauder is in fact the one who holds bizarre and sectarian views that don't undermine any of my objections. What about his nine arguments for naturalism? First, physical matter. At most, God's goodness would entail both a non-physical and a physical value-generating universe, which still confirms theism. His second objection makes my point that physical matter isn't really an argument for either one of our positions, but is really just an unspecified prediction he hasn't supported. Second, hostility to life. He sidestepped his original objection and now claims that God should have used different laws, but A, he already thinks God can't according to his anti-creation argument, B, he hasn't shown the laws are contingent, C, he hasn't shown these other laws would produce an even better value-generating universe than our own. D, the formational economy argument I gave strongly supports theism over naturalism according to the Bayesian total evidence requirement, even if the laws are contingent. E, using miracles to skip the hostile development of the universe would produce a less valuable universe because autonomy, intelligibility, and discoverability would be undermined. F, since total significance decreases in proportion to the number of other intrinsically valuable things in the universe, a universe teeming with moral agents would be less valuable than ours. Third, evolution is God's only option. He says God could have created biological creatures with different intrinsic essences, but he already thinks God can't, given his anti-creation argument, and I showed this is impossible for an omnipotent God because biological creatures necessarily have historical essences, which requires common ancestry. He claims I illegitimately appeal to authority, but it isn't just Ayala that thinks unguided evolution works too slowly to produce intelligent life. It is the majority of evolutionary biologists. He claims God would have to intervene to guide evolution, and that's ad hoc. No, God could guide evolution without intervening in two ways, through quantum indeterminacy and by front-loading the universe with the right initial conditions. Thus, we still have multiple reasons to think the universe wouldn't be teeming with moral agents more impressive than humans on theism, that evolution is evidence for theism, and the formational economy of the universe significantly outweighs Jeff's atheistic intelligibility argument, since it shows that the entire natural history of the universe implies the supernatural. Fourth, pain and pleasure. My necessary laws and evolution is God's only option to fear still stand. Jeff didn't respond to my two arguments for moral 
flourishing and perception from my last speech, which still outweigh this argument. Fifth, flourishing and languishing. My necessary laws and evolution is God's only option to feed her still stand, and he said nothing that defeated my animals don't suffer to the extent humans do, and no right to life defeaters. Sixth, triumph and tragedy. I argued that if God used evolution, then it is likely that natural selection would be blind to God's morally sufficient reasons for allowing anomalous types of tragic evil, and he never responded. His evidence for tragedies being the rule is anecdotal, and he evinces a psychological phenomenon known as negativity bias. Third, I gave four responses which outweighed Jeff's appeal to tragedies, and he never responded. What about horrific suffering often destroying people? I have already shown that it is empirically false that horrific suffering often destroys people, and he never responded to my point about human resiliency supporting theism. What about God comforting people? I never said that God made us resilient as a way to comfort us, so his heartless analogy is directed at nothing I said, and he still hasn't addressed my original two arguments that show comfort is available to everyone, even if they don't believe in God. Seventh, mind-brain dependence. He didn't give any reason to think God could create souls capable of performing miracles, and given his anti-creation argument, he doesn't think God can. Therefore, the lack of embodied moral agents more impressive than us, conscious life arising from non-conscious life, and the limitations on our freedom we see are unsurprising on theism, even apart from my evolutionary argument. He dropped his point about moral responsibility requiring libertarian freedom, which implies that my argument from embodied moral agents stands up, even apart from fine-tuning. Eighth, ethical disagreement. He didn't challenge my reasons to think it wasn't possible or rational for God to try and erase all ethical disagreement. Moreover, his proposed solution is unlikely since Jesus has many explicit teachings Christians disagree on and don't follow already. He thinks God should tell us morality is indeterminate. But this wouldn't change anything because some people would disagree with God himself, and the best reasons to convince us of this fact would be the very ethical disagreement we already experience. He thinks God is to blame for violent ethical disagreement amongst Christians. Judging from Jesus' teachings, perpetrators of religious evil aren't genuinely religious, salvation depends primarily on secular morality, and secular morality trumps religiosity, which teaches against such actions. And he only has a duty of intervention if he has necessary authority over us, which he doesn't. Ninth, divine hiddenness. If there really are non-resistant non-believers, no matter how strong or accessible the evidence, then this entails that, if God were to present in a relevant manner to those who don't believe, then they would enter into a permanent, meaningful relationship with God. But how does he know this? His only evidence on offer is from former believers. But this actually undercuts our warrant for this entailment. Indeed, if the evidence for God's existence is as strong as he allows it to be, that is strong evidence that there aren't any truly non-resistant non-believers. Moreover, recent findings from various branches of psychology also show we are unwarranted in accepting testimonial evidence for non-resistors because humans are unreliable judges of themselves in this regard. Lastly, he still hasn't shown that a meaningful relationship with God requires the belief that God exists. Let's turn to my positive case now for Christian theism. What about my argument from the applicability of mathematics? Jeff issued me a challenge to show a less interesting mathematical universe than our own. This is easy. Many scientists postulate an infinite number of universes that, unlike our universe, have high levels of entropy, which isn't distributed over a vast region. According to Robin Collins, without the low level and vast distribution of entropy in our universe, we couldn't do cosmology, and we couldn't understand the Big Bang origin of our universe. What about discoverability? The point of this argument is that you can have an intelligible universe without anybody around or positioned to notice. So the fact that the same narrow circumstances that allow Earth to exist also provide the best overall setting for making scientific observations, and the fact that those same observations have yielded evidence for God work together to outweigh Jeff's hostility to life argument independent of the applicability of mathematics, because it shows Earth has an exceptionally privileged location in the universe. He claims that fine-tuning probabilities aren't normalizable. This objection presupposes a principle in probability calculus called countable additivity, which according to Robin Collins has been very controversial for almost every type of probability, with many purported counterexamples, including fine-tuning, as shown in John Leslie's fly-on-the-wall thought experiment. He claims the prior probability of the resurrection is incredible, 
incredibly low. But given the religio-historical context, God's raising Jesus from the dead is most plausibly understood as God's ratification of Jesus' own unparalleled life, teachings, claims, and deeds which would give God powerful motivation to raise him. He claims the resurrection hypothesis doesn't explain the facts. But given the established background knowledge that the God of Israel was believed to authenticate new revelation to man by performing a miracle and thereafter commissioning humans to spread this new revelation, plus the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead, we can see that the resurrection hypothesis implies the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief in a bodily resurrected Jesus. He claims the resurrection hypothesis doesn't imply a full Jewish resurrection, but given its Jewish context, if the God of Israel has raised Jesus, thereby vindicating his allegedly blasphemous claims, then the most natural inference is that Jesus' resurrection has occurred in the full Jewish sense of that term, ahead of the general resurrection, which was the Jewish hope. It would be grossly ad hoc to infer otherwise. In sum, we have no good reason to think naturalism is true, and 12 lines of evidence that support Christian theism. On balance, Christian theism is much more probable than naturalism. Well, I've really enjoyed this debate. Let's dive right into it. First, simplicity. He tries to make Christian theism appear as modest as naturalism by listing six statements entailed by naturalism, but that isn't how modesty works, because we can define an infinite number of entailments for any hypothesis. Rather, naturalism is narrower in scope than Christian theism. Furthermore, since the evidence in both of his first two arguments is uncertain, it follows that the conclusion God exists necessarily is also uncertain. So we have to consider intrinsic probability. Second, accuracy. Regarding naturalistic theism, which is a term I thought I'd invented, he's given no good reason on theism to think natural laws are necessary. But if they are metaphysically necessary, then the fundamental constants are probably also necessary, since that view is more coherent than the idea that the laws are necessary, but the constants are not. And the necessity of both the laws and the constants is antecedently much more likely on naturalism than on theism. Because he's given no reason to think natural laws are necessary, the facts of cosmic hostility, natural ex naturalistic explanations, evolution, mind-brain dependence, types and distribution of moral agents, limitations on freedom, pain and pleasure, and flourishing and languishing are all more likely on naturalism. Furthermore, he's given no reason to think that God's goodness requires that God create physical matter or that the entire natural history of the universe implies the supernatural. So physical matter and the success of naturalistic explanations favor naturalism. He still hasn't clearly answered when God created. First, his defense of metaphysical time violates the inductive rule of total evidence by ignoring the background knowledge that things which begin to exist come from pre-existing material. Second, there is no such thing as causally prior, but not temporally prior. Timeless without creation just is timeless before time, which is incoherent. Third, there is no correct argument from authority which shows the BGV theorem proves an absolute beginning or that the universe cannot be explained by its own nature and by what else exists and doesn't exist. He doesn't describe a universe where set theory isn't applicable to physical reality, and if the same fine-tuning explains both the universe's discoverability and life-permitting conditions, then it would seem that we can't have one without the other, and so he's again double-counting evidence. As for evolution, what I said is that God didn't have to create the exact set of animals we have. God could have created different creatures. Regarding pain and pleasure, since humans and closely related animals share very similar mental states, those animals very likely feel pain just as intensely as we do. And animal suffering is very difficult to reconcile with Mr. Vandegrift's naturalistic evolutionary Christian theism, which entails that animal suffering existed long before humans did and so long before original sin. Regarding triumph and tragedy, the point here is that A, not everyone experiences either triumph or tragedy, B, out of those who do, tragedy is much more common than triumph, and C, horrific tragedies are more common than glorious triumphs. Attempts to deny this smack of a first world perspective 
disconnected from global events. Yes, people are hardwired to be resilient and find meaning in tragic events, but D, this mechanism is not surprising on evolutionary naturalism. E, it's far from perfect, and F, God can do better. He still hasn't given a reason to think God would need to create a maximally powerful being in order to create embodied moral agents. Regarding moral agency, he's undermined his own argument with his denial of A, the contingency of natural laws, and B, libertarian free will, effectively downgrading the evidence about moral agency to evidence about cosmic fine-tuning. In order to defend fine-tuning, he has to deny one of the rules of mathematical probability known as countable additivity. But, as Timothy McGrew has shown, this destroys the possibility of showing that fine-tuning is more probable on theism than on naturalism. Regarding moral perception and flourishing, Darwin's thought experiment asks us to imagine human beings being raised under the same conditions as hive bees. But even then, we'd still be humans with human natures, not bees with bee natures. On the ethical theory I've presented, what's good for bees doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what's good for humans. Our biological natures are totally different, and that's a crucial difference on Aristotelian ethical naturalism. As for ethical disagreement, even if God can't eliminate disagreement, he could have decreased disagreement. He doubts non-resistant non-believers, but as John Schellenberg writes, it would take something like willful blindness to fail to affirm that not all non-belief is the product of willful blindness. He denies that a relationship with God requires the belief that God exists, but that's a contradiction in terms. The belief that God exists is necessary for belief in God. Regarding the resurrection, what we heard in the last speech was a priori speculation about what God would do with a corpse, but this ignores the empirical evidence about what God does do with corpses. On the assumption that God exists, all of our relevant observations about both dead bodies and statistical mechanics in general show that God virtually always wills that the dead stay dead, and we still don't have evidence that Jesus' body was incorruptible. Whose view is simpler? If naturalism entails HI, which is simpler than naturalism, then naturalism entails at least six claims, just like Christian theism entails supernaturalism. But that entails that our two hypotheses are equal in simplicity. Does God exist necessarily? Thinks not, because he says things always come from pre-existing materials. Now, more space begins to exist without pre-existing materials all the time, and he never responded to my two other objections. He says timelessness without creation involves time, but there cannot be time in the absence of changes, and a timeless being is changeless, which entails there would be no time without creation. He says BGV theorem doesn't prove an absolute beginning, but the BGV theorem shows the universe probably began to exist and can't be factually necessary. It needn't prove this because I am arguing that God exists with factual necessity, not logical necessity. He says I haven't shown the laws are necessary on theism. I did give two reasons to think they are necessary, and since quantum indeterminacy is part of our best science, they are also probably uniformly and necessarily probabilistic, which is what you would expect on theism because such laws give God almost unlimited freedom to act in the world. He says necessary laws imply necessary constants, but cosmologists have shown that the symmetry-breaking events that caused the constants, quantities, and initial conditions to fall out of the Big Bang were settled randomly. It says all my objections presuppose necessary laws, but of the 50-plus objections I have made against Mr. Louder's case, only four appeal to what he calls naturalistic theism. Moreover, he seems to agree that if the laws are necessarily probabilistic, as I have shown, then all of his arguments are undercut, while none of mine are. He says I didn't give reasons to expect physical matter and intelligibility on theism. I have given seven reasons from the formational economy of the universe and from God's goodness and free choice in all possible worlds. He says some math always applies 
realized, perhaps, but the point was to show a universe that is significantly less far-reaching in aesthetic a priori mathematical applications, and I showed there are literally an infinite number of universes unlike ours in this respect, and he didn't respond. Are fine-tuning for discoverability and life one argument? No, these two can come apart because if the entropy of the universe was a little higher, we would be able to survive longer, but this would negatively impact discoverability. But it just so happens to be at a level that optimally promotes both longevity and discoverability, which means these two arguments doubly add to the probability of theism. He says God didn't need common ancestry. Unfortunately, he simply doesn't understand my argument here still, and he didn't respond to my argument that evolution is actually evidence for theism. Do animals suffer just like humans? No, only 0.0001% of animals are self-aware, and even they aren't as self-aware as humans. He didn't respond to my no right to life defeater, and original sin isn't required for Christian theism to be true. Read some Irenaeus. He says tragedies are the rule. He may be right, but he hasn't empirically shown this yet, and I already gave two defeaters which he never responded to. He admits people are resilient and comforted in tragedies now, and I showed these two mechanisms are surprising on naturalism. He never responded. And Christian theism has resources to gloriously and triumphantly defeat horrific tragedies. In his life and death on the cross, Jesus participates in horrors and tragedies as an innocent, but triumphantly and gloriously overcomes horrific tragedies in his resurrection, so horrors that seemed like they could have annihilated meaning altogether for innocent victims are now seen as a secure point of identification with the crucified Jesus that engulfs any horrific tragedy with glorious and triumphant positive meaning. Do embodied moral agents need to be maximally powerful? I never claimed that. What I said is that his expectation of embodied moral agents with a soul on theism would require agents that can do miracles, which for all we know would require maximal power, and he never responded. And this shows that the limitations on our freedom aren't surprising on theism. Does moral responsibility require contingent laws and libertarian freedom? Nothing about moral responsibility on compatibilism and semi-compatibilism requires contingent laws or even libertarian free will. Only a reasons responsive mechanism, which means embodied moral agency supports theism apart from fine-tuning. Did I deny probability calculus? No. Given the counterexamples to countable additivity, the idea is that it doesn't apply to fine-tuning probabilities, even though it is mathematically consistent. Moreover, countable additivity only applies to logical probability, but our arguments rely on epistemic probability. He says universal biological desires determine the good. On his view, had we desired to murder, rape, and steal given a different evolutionary inheritance, then that would be good and right. But since reason teaches us that such things cannot be right, what is surprising is that the only robust moral agents to come out of evolution are the same agents whose instinctual beliefs and desires are predominantly amenable to rationally reflective goods. Could God have reduced ethical disagreement? I already gave eight reasons that showed why this is unlikely and he never responded. Am I willfully blind? I gave three reasons to doubt an entailment of the hiddenness argument and he never responded. Moreover, because of evolution, our intellectual and emotional dispositions cannot be set up the way this argument presupposes. Is belief that prior to belief in? No. Psychologists identify experiential intimacy as that kind of meaningful relationship via shared activity that doesn't require being aware of the other. I shared a Christian model of this with Schellenberg, and Schellenberg said it was coherent. Did I speculate God would raise Jesus? He grants that if we add those facts I mentioned about Jesus into our background knowledge, then it is likely God would raise Jesus despite the decay of others. But he thinks they are merely a priori speculations. However, they actually are empirical, historical facts accepted by the majority of historians. Also, since the probability of naturalistic explanations are astronomically low, this cancels out this objection. Can we infer an incorruptible body? I gave an inference to the best explanation argument, and judging by those criteria, I showed in my last speech that given the religio-historical context, it is plausible Jesus was raised with an incorruptible body. What we are left with are 12 good arguments for Christian theism and zero for naturalism. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.